in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, and you can follow along with me in your pew Bible on page 972. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking the approval of man or of God. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in persons in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the very, very good news that you sent Jesus to live and to die for us and to be raised from the dead for us. The very good news that you are a God who forgives all our sins. Father, we pray that this morning as we sit beneath the teaching of your word, that we would hear your voice above all others. That we would hear you calling to us to come to Jesus, to find life in him, to find rest in Him. Father, we pray that Your Word this morning would transform us, that You would begin now the slow work of transforming 
and making us into the people you created us to be and have redeemed us to be in Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, um, there's no children's church. This morning, we'll be back on schedule next week. So there's good news for you a week from uh, today. Um, So, um, but this morning, we are beginning a series through Paul's letter to Galatians, that long passage that Trace read for us a little bit ago. And I'm really, I am going to try to handle the entirety of chapter one this morning. And we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of zoom out to get the big picture of where Paul is heading. And then over the weeks to come, we'll zoom in a little bit closer and look more at the details. But the consensus of scholarship is that Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians in AD 50. So that's just 15 to 20 years removed from Christ's death and his resurrection. And the reason he wrote this letter, the reason he wrote this letter was to make the gospel of grace, to make it crystal clear. See, after Paul had planted these churches in Galatia, some Jewish Christian missionaries had moved in after him. And they came in basically saying, the gospel that Paul taught you is, is fine and everything, but it's incomplete, is what they were saying. It, it wasn't quite the whole truth. They were saying, yes, you need to trust in Jesus, but that's not quite enough. Paul watered it down for you, they were saying. Um, if you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to know you are accepted as God's children, if you really want to be sure that God loves you, then there are some rules you need to follow too. And we'll get to some of those rules in the weeks to come. But I, I do need you to hear this clearly up front, that Paul is writing this letter to his friends to make crystal clear the gospel of grace. Paul is saying to be a Christian, to be perfectly accepted as God's child, to, be, to have full assurance that God loves you completely, you need one thing, and only one thing. You need Jesus and Him alone. If you add one little thing to that, one little rule to Jesus, you're going to miss the gospel of grace entirely. Listen, in the 1700s, a little history lesson here, there was a little group of friends that God used to spark a revival that led to the conversion of hundreds and hundreds of thousands. And historians refer to that often as the Great Awakening. Right? John Wesley was key in this. John Wesley was converted when a friend of his named William Holland, was this little group of friends, and William Holland was reading out loud one day Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And he was reading a part where Paul, where Paul was especially clear about the gospel of grace, and John Wesley was converted. But a, a little less known fact, a uh, piece of history, is that one week prior to this, William Holland himself had gotten converted. And he got converted when Charles Wesley, John's brother, was reading out loud Martin Luther's preface to the book of Galatians where Luther was very, very clear 
about the gospel of grace. And by the way, on your way out, there's a little table back there. I printed off Martin Luther's preface, if you want to grab it, to the book of Galatians. It's by far the most influential thing I've ever read in my life. Um, So I'll just say that, little plug, no pressure. Um, But like dynamite, right, the gospel of grace that proclaimed Jesus alone, it just, it exploded in their lives, and it radically transformed their lives. You can read their stories, you can read the history, right? The clear gospel of grace sparked a revival that didn't just change individuals, but it changed the entire face of Western civilization. And there is dynamite in the gospel, in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And what I'm doing right now is I'm begging you to listen to it. I'm begging you to let it deal with you. Because this is not hyperbole right now. When the gospel of grace deals with you personally, it will take you to deeper depths of peace than you ever imagined. It will take you to higher heights of joy than you ever dreamed possible. Listen, it will quiet your conscience completely. And it will simultaneously make you burst out in song to discover or rediscover this gospel of grace that Paul is talking about here. And that's enough of an introduction, because I want to get right into this. I want us to begin looking at this first chapter and consider this gospel of grace by looking at these three things. The origin of the gospel of grace, the reversal of the gospel of grace, and the freedom of the gospel of grace. So, those three things, the origin, the reversal, and the freedom of the gospel of grace. First, the origin of the gospel of grace. Immediately after Paul mentions his name and his title, Paul an apostle, the first word you meet, the third word in the Greek, is not. Right? Paul was saying there, I'm an apostle, and I got my commission to preach, and I got my message from no man and through no man. Immediately, he says, I got my message straight from the mouth of the risen Lord Jesus. See, he wants you to know right away, and he revisits this at length in verses 11 through 24, that the origin of the gospel is entirely divine, that it was revealed to him. Okay, in verses 11 through 12, Paul is saying, I didn't invent this gospel, and I wasn't instructed in this gospel. See, verse 11, this isn't man's gospel, he says. He's saying, I didn't, I didn't invent it. I didn't make it up. Verse 12, I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. He's saying, I wasn't instructed in this gospel. And then Paul wrote in the latter half of verse 12, but I received it through what? Through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And what follows is a detailed description in these verses of why he wouldn't have invented the gospel and how he wasn't instructed in the gospel. He was getting along fine in Judaism, he says. And he was working violently to persecute the church and destroy the church. But all of his activity, he says, was interrupted when Jesus was revealed to him. Verse 15, but when... But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. 
And then he wrote about how he went into Arabia for three years. And only after three years did he go up to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas or Peter and James. Um, and only for 15 days, he says. And what he's really saying, he's saying, I didn't go up, I didn't spend enough time there to be instructed in the gospel. I only spent enough time there to be confirmed that our message was the same. And, and, and of course, throughout this passage, he, he's not only mentioning people, but he's also mentioning places. Now, why give out all those details, Paul? Because he's inviting his readers to do a little fact-checking, right? He's saying, go talk to Peter, and go talk to James, and talk to the other apostles, and go visit some of these places that I preached, and you'll see I didn't invent this gospel, and I wasn't instructed in it. It was given to me by revelation. Now, if you can give me your best attention for about five minutes... I need to say something very important, and then we can move on. Some of you are immediately bothered by what Paul says here. And if you aren't immediately bothered by it, I can assure you that you have friends who are bothered by it. And what I mean is that Paul comes and he says, my gospel is the only gospel. Right? He, he comes and he says, God told me so. It was unveiled, it was revealed, and it was given to me, right? It's a very fair and honest question to ask. What gives anyone the right to talk like this? I mean, isn't this what Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius said too? Let me, let me deal with the first question. What gives anyone a right to say this? And another way to ask this is, how do you know what you know is the truth? How do you know what you know is the truth? And, and we, we have to do a little work, work for it, but Paul is addressing that here. And the fancy word for how you know what you know is epistemology. And Paul is saying in this passage that there are basically three epistemologies. One is tradition. You know, I know what I know because my leaders, because the people in power and authority, because they say so, because my church says so, because my culture says this. And Paul alludes to this in verse 8, and he says, but even if we, that is, even if your leaders, even if I, Paul, and the other apostles come to you, and if we come with a different gospel, he says, if we come to you and say we've changed our minds about this, He says, don't listen to us. Don't listen. Another epistemology, which is probably more familiar to us, is the more modern kind of individualist approach, right? I know what I know by looking deep inside myself. You've seen this like in every Disney movie, right? My heart, my experience, my feelings, they are my guide to truth. You know who else says that? Every serial killer who's ever lived, right? And Paul alludes to this too in verse 8. He says, even if an angel from heaven comes to you. And what he's saying, he's saying, even if you have a vision, even if you have an, an experience that is so intense and so dramatic and so palpable to you, if it differs from this gospel, don't listen to it. And the third epistemology is, of course, revelation. We know what we know. Because God has lifted the veil and revealed it to us. And this, this is what Paul's appealing to. He's, he's saying something like this. I want you to judge me. 
I want you to judge the church. I want you to judge your feelings. I want you to judge your experience by this gospel. The church or tradition or your experience don't judge the gospel. This revealed gospel judges the church and judges your experience. So what makes this gospel revelation and message different from all other truth claims? In other words, how do you begin to privilege one claim to revelation against all the others? And this is a great question. This is just going to be a very partial answer this morning. But listen, the absolute uniqueness of the gospel is a compelling reason for its divine origin. See, there isn't a single founder of another world religion that ever claims to be a savior. Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, they would be furious with you if you called them saviors. They all came to teach, to teach a way to God, right? To show a path towards enlightenment, to give an example of a worthy life to follow. Every time humanity has tried to imagine and invent God, we've imagined Him in our own image. And we've imagined that God would therefore be strong and He would be mighty and He would be powerful and that the only way that we could appease Him or the only way we could get to Him and climb the ladder towards Him would be through our sacrificial service and through our obedient performance and through our achievements. Here's what I'm telling you. We would have never invented a crucified God, a dying God, a God who would offer Himself as a sacrifice for us. We live in an, inc- in an incredibly pluralistic culture, right? It, many, many approaches to God, and that's all fine and well, but you need to understand the world in which Christianity emerged was far more pluralistic than ours. And as Rankin-Wilborn says, Christianity presented itself then and now as the most compelling choice intellectually and experientially. It is an absolutely unique revelation. I honestly cannot keep up with all the superhero movies that are out right now. Um, There's just way too many. Iron Man, Superman, Batman, Avengers. I I don't know how they all fit together. But I I know this. I'm a little over 40 uh, now. And... um, The superheroes nowadays are very different from the superheroes of my youth. And here's what I mean. When I was a kid, superheroes, they were always strong. They were never vulnerable and weak. Right? They were always pure and right in all their motives. They never had great doubts about their lives. Right? And as a child growing up, you know, I might want to be like Superman, But I could never relate to somebody like Superman. And apparently the reaction to all this has spawned all all these other superheroes right now. And, And superheroes, if you've been to the movies in the last five years, you know this. They have real weaknesses, and and they're vulnerable. And they're they're struggling, and they're fraught with difficulty and doubts and complexity. Now listen to me. The divinely revealed gospel offers you an absolutely unique hero. Because you don't have to choose between power and weakness with him. You don't have to choose between strength and vulnerability. He was all of it for you. 
the almighty, eternal God, took on flesh. The Creator trembled and sweat drops of blood in the garden. The Maker of all things was fastened naked to a cross. Paul is claiming all the way throughout this chapter to possess a revelation from God, and a revelation of an utterly unique God who, verse 4, gave himself for our sins to deliver us. Let me say one final thing. It is terribly sad that in claiming the uniqueness of the gospel and of Jesus, that Christians have often been unkind and self-righteous while doing so. I want you to know that where that unkindness and where that self-righteousness comes, it's an absolute betrayal of Jesus and the gospel. Because, listen, if, if there is any approach to God that provides a resource for standing alongside people you differ with in absolute love and peace and kindness, it is this divinely given gospel this revelation, because it's revelation. It's the, and it's the revelation that the Almighty became weak and vulnerable for you when you were his enemies. Okay, second, we'll start pick, picking up a little speed here. I want, I want us to consider the reversal of the gospel of grace. And the reason I've titled this second point that way, the reversal of the gospel, is because of a word in verse 7. It's translated distort in the, ver, in the version we read this morning. But the Greek word is actually a word that means to turn inside out. It's a word that means to reverse the order. Paul is saying that when teachers came in and, and they started saying, yes, belief in Jesus is good and that's fine, but it's incomplete. You know, they're, they're saying there's also some more things that you need to do. And Paul is saying the moment they added one little thing to the gospel, they reversed the entire gospel. Verse 6, he says it was a different gospel, which Paul very quickly adds in verse 7, which is not really another gospel. Literally, he says it's a no-gospel gospel. Notably, this is the only letter of Paul's in the entire Bible that, where Paul doesn't include any notes of thanksgiving for the people he's writing to. It, just a salutation, right? He rushes ahead in verse 6 to meet the danger of a reverse gospel. Now, No thanksgiving included, right? That's unique. But also, verses 3 to 5, they make up the longest salutation of any of Paul's letters. Why so long-winded in verses 3 through 5? Because in spite of Paul's astonishment, and it's hard to read through that passage correctly and to pick up on the anger that is there with Paul, but in spite of all his astonishment and even anger, in verses 3 through 5, he already is bursting at the seams. I mean, he is so excited about the gospel of grace that he crams a summary of this gospel into those verses. If you take a a quick look, he summarizes the ministry of Jesus. And if you're thinking about what we just said on the last point, never once in the summary of Jesus' ministry does he mention Jesus' teaching. That's unique, right? Sure, Jesus was a great teacher. Lots of people recognize that, but that is not why he came. Right Here's the summary. When Paul says in verse 4 that Jesus came to deliver us, he is implying something very clearly, that we were helpless and lost, and that teaching would do us about as much good as it would to throw a swimming manual to a drowning victim. 
no good at all. We were so lost and so broken, Paul is saying, that we needed to be delivered. And what was done to deliver us? Verse 4, again, Jesus gave himself for our sins. He came to substitute himself for us. He came to live the life we should have lived but couldn't live. He came to die the death we should have died. And why did God himself, why did God himself do this for us and therefore declare grace and peace to us? Verse 4, it was according to the will of our God and Father. And this is what Paul is saying, because it pleased him. Because it brought him delight. And it brought him pleasure to love his broken creation. Why then would verse 5, the glory, all the glory belong to him forever and ever? Because you didn't lift so much as a finger to accomplish any of your salvation or to merit any of it. The gospel of grace, Paul is saying, is completely free. That's his whole point. So here's his big concern. These teachers have come in and they started saying, you need Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised and you need to follow the Jewish ceremonies and rituals and rules. By adding one little thing, they've completely missed and reversed the gospel. How so? Paul is giving you a clue with that word reverse, right? Because Paul is signaling something to you. He is saying there is an order to this gospel of grace. See, here it is. Either God loves you completely and sets you free, and as a result, you live a changed and transformed life, or you are trying to live a changed life and trying to measure up and perform in order that God will love you. To deviate from that, even just a little, is to miss the gospel of grace completely. Listen, if you were parched and thirsty, I even have a prop um, because I'm a little parched and thirsty. Uh, But if you were parched and thirsty and I set this glass of water in front of you, but before you took that glass, I just one little drop of poisonous cyanide in it right? (laughs) One little drop. It doesn't matter if it's a small drop. It doesn't matter that it's just one drop. That water is now changed. The entire thing is contaminated by that drop of cyanide, and to drink it would end your life. Listen, let me quickly give you three little drops of cyanide that we regularly add to the gospel and therefore reverse the gospel of grace. First, is the easiest one to recognize. I'll say the least about it. When you assume that being a Christian means you do certain things or don't do certain things. The way you dress when you come to church, what political party you vote for, how you educate your children, what, what you think of certain styles of music and worship. Um, you know, the sometimes subtle, but sometimes not very subtle ways that you assume that you need to get your act together in order to be acceptable to God. That's adding cyanide to this gospel. Second drop, when you assume that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're a good person. You know, we've heard this peddled towards us a a lot of different ways, and I want you to understand that that is incredibly intolerant. (laughs) What about me? What if I'm not good? You know, in an effort to be as inclusive as possible, that, that belief has excluded everybody who feels unworthy and broken and sinful. Jesus plus your best intentions, your best motives, your morality, it is cyanide. Third, and perhaps the hardest to recognize, I think, sincerity. When you add to the gospel the sincerity of your belief, when you say, but I really believe it now, 
and I really feel sorry for my sins now, and I'm really emotionally committed to following Jesus now. And it all sounds very, very biblical to you, but the gospel of grace is, I'm telling you, it is freer than you have ever imagined because it has nothing to do with your level of faith or your sincerity. It has everything to do with the object of your faith, Jesus. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. You know, Paul, when he's writing this letter to the Galatians, he equates adding one little thing to the gospel with verse 6, deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Listen, Paul understands that even the slightest addition to this gospel, it is ultimately a lie about and an assault on the character of God. It is suggesting that you need to be something other than who you are at this very moment in order to be loved completely and fully by this God. That you need to be doing more than you're doing right now to be assured of His perfect love for you. Paul is saying this, come to Jesus and Jesus alone right now as you are, and Paul offers you this assurance that God loves you now at this moment as much as He will ever love you for all eternity. Third, and briefly, I want you to think with me about the freedom of the gospel of grace. And here, I just want to whet your appetite a bit. I want you to see that the gospel of grace, that it isn't just free, but that it is, in fact, freeing for you. Do you notice what Paul said in verse 10? He asked this question, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul is saying that the gospel of grace has set him completely free from the fear of man. And I don't want you to get the wrong idea here. When we talk about the fear of man, we're not necessarily saying that you're frightened, right? Fear in the Bible has to do with awe. It has to do with what you're attracted to and what you want and what you worship. And I'll tell you this, we all struggle with this, this deep desire to be approved by others, the sometimes paralyzing fear in our lives of rejection. The word now in this verse means that Paul used to be a people pleaser just like you and just like me. He didn't just want the love and acceptance and approval of others. He needed it. But he's saying now in the gospel, I don't need it. The one person, the only person whose opinion truly matters, Jesus, he loves me completely. And therefore, he has set me free from the need of the approval of men. But it doesn't set him free to nothing. I want you to see this. He's saying that he's a servant or a slave to Christ. Listen, if you're obeying Jesus and you're trying to be moral and righteous and good in the hopes that he will reward you with his love, who do you think you're really serving? You're not serving Jesus. You're serving yourself. What you can get out of your obedience and your performance and your achievement, only when you know that he already loves you fully and accepts you entirely, are you set free to love him just for him? Listen, if you want to know the condition of your heart, ask yourself this, when is the last time, when is the last time you did something just for Jesus? Or when is the last time you didn't do something just because you love Jesus? Listen, the heart that embraces 
This gospel of grace in Jesus alone is set free to delight in Jesus and to serve Jesus and to love him just for him. Paul also shows you the freedom found in repenting of your righteousness. Listen, every religion involves some form of repentance of sin. There is nothing unique about that. It's everywhere. But when Paul piles up his credentials, that how, how zealous he is and how he's advancing in Ju- Judaism beyond his contemporaries, he's saying, I was at the top of my class when it came to righteousness. And surely Paul knew something about repentance of sin. But when Jesus was revealed, when the gospel of grace was revealed to him, he was set free to repent even of his righteousness. You know, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul goes to even greater lengths to describe his righteousness. And in the end, he says that he looked at his righteousness and considered it all rubbish, which a better translation of that is, I saw it as a pile of dung. Compared to the righteousness that comes from God and is found through faith in Jesus. Do you understand how incredibly freeing this is? To repent of your righteousness frees you from ever having to be defensive with your spouse again. To repent of your righteousness frees you from ever needing to blame shift in your life again. It frees you from every bit of pride and arrogance, which is simply the flip side of the coin of your insecurity and shame in life. There is not one little thing you can add to Jesus to improve upon him that will make you more lovable, more valuable, more accepted than you already are. So you're free to leave your righteousness too. Last thing, Paul talks about how the gospel of grace brings the freedom of transformation. He talks about his incredible transformation from the one who is persecuting the church. He was dragging Christians from their homes and giving approval over their, their executions. All that you have seen in the news this past year of ISIS killing Christians, don't you realize Paul was doing that? Paul was doing that to people in the same areas that he's talking about in this letter, in Syria and Cilicia. Listen, the gospel of grace came and dealt with him so thoroughly that it turned him into a herald of the good news of this gospel. Verse 23 through 24, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. If you claim to believe and a rest in this gospel of grace, and you are not being transformed in your life, then you've missed it. You've maybe never understood it, or you've added something to it and therefore missed it entirely. There ought to be people in your life that glorify God because of what they see in you. They ought to be saying about, what happened to her? <laughs> he is so different. What, I used to know him. What happened? It should be spilling out in your life in incredible joy, in deep love for others, in radical humility and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And if, you don't, if you're not familiar with those words, they show up again in chapter 5 of Galatians because that's the fruit of the Spirit. He's saying when the gospel of grace gets hold of you, it will transform you from the inside out. Last little story. It's a favorite, favorite story of mine, so if you've heard it before, just act like you're hearing it for the first time. Um, Years ago, I was at uh, Liberty Land here in Memphis, and um, if you're new to the area, it's gone now, but it was this sad little amusement park, um, you know, with just, it really, it just had three rides, and I was there one summer, and um, after 30 minutes, I I rode all the rides multiple times, Uh, so 
I got a corn dog, a pronto pup, and uh, and a coke, and I sat down on a bench. And uh, and as I was sitting on the bench, I, I started noticing everyone around me um, was started giggling and whispering and pointing and staring. And so I looked to see what they were pointing at. And it was a girl, probably eight or nine years old, um, and her dad. And they were, um, there was this puddle that had formed under one of those mist machines, you know, on the sidewalks. And they were, they were playing together in that puddle and just being silly and dancing and laughing. laughing. He was picking her up and putting her on his shoulders. Um, but the reason for all the stares and all the whispers and, and giggles and pointing was that this little girl, she was, she was horribly physically deformed right? Um, on one side of her body, the arm and the leg was at least three times as large as the arm and the leg on the other side. It, and it's hard to even describe to you now how awkward that little asymmetrical body looked. Um, but, you know, I'm sitting there on that bench, and immediately I'm furious. You know, how dare they laugh, at her and point at her and ridicule her. And I was trying to think, well, what am I going to do? And then I realized that this little girl, she didn't care at all. I mean, she was oblivious to it. She was spinning with her dad and dancing in the water, and he was putting her on her shoulders, and she had this huge smile on her face. And I realized she was free, right? She had the smile of her father. She had his love completely and freely, and she didn't need anything else. Listen, I I think about this little girl, and I think, what wouldn't she do to please her father with the way she lived her life? Not to get anything from her father, because she already had it all. Listen to me. That scene stuck with me. I saw it. And I'm telling you, I wasn't even the recipient of that father's love. And I saw it and I wanted to be a better man because of it. Listen, that's just a dim, a dim and dismal hint of the gospel of grace. Come to Jesus alone and you will only be able to begin to imagine how much he loves you. You will only begin to imagine the smile on his face for you. Don't miss this freedom by trying to add even the slightest thing to this gospel of grace. The gospel is good news. It's not advice. Everything you need to be assured of God's great love for you, Paul is saying, it's already been accomplished for you. And the one who gave himself for you, you are free. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, forgive us for how little we trust these words. Forgive us for the ways we have tried to add to this gospel, and the result has been that we have diminished it and slandered your character. Father, thank you for the wonderful good news that everything necessary for life and salvation, Jesus has accomplished for us 
and His life, death, and resurrection. Father, we pray that this morning and throughout the weeks to come, that You would sink this gospel deep into our hearts, that You would quiet our consciences with it, that You would give to us a peace and a joy we've only previously dreamed of. Father, bring us to Jesus, we pray, so that we would know Your smile and know Your love. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.